Well, good morning, New Hope. It is super good to be back in New Zealand. Never forget, you guys, we've got a great country. I've just come back from, every year I do some education. Every year, like you have professional development, um, Calvin, in your business or whatever it may be. I like to, the Bible says leaders are learners. And the moment you stop learning, you stop leading. Doesn't matter what your job is, you need to keep on the cutting edge. Invest in education. The Bible says get the facts and be equipped. Today I want to carry on on part two of a series I started the week before last week. How many of you, a couple of quick questions before we start. How many of you saw the rugby last night? Ooh, you're the tough guys. Some of our guys saw the rugby and we're here at 6.30 this morning. How many saw Pat last week, my brother Pat? Yeah? Great. I'm glad you would have enjoyed him. He's a, a good bloke. So today I'm going to talk about, my talk today is why on earth is life so hard sometimes? It's not all the time, but sometimes. Why does it get really tough sometimes? And we're in this series called The Hidden Battle. And I started it by looking at the three enemies that push against you and your family and your soul. And the first one was our flesh, we talked about it, our old nature, which, think about it, you can see this even in little babies. You never have, when a baby's born, you're always as parents trying to pull them back to do the right thing, to say please, to be grateful, to be polite, to be thankful, not to be ungrateful, impolite, and that. Because they tend to, in the old days when we used to buy a car, old days, when we were trying a new car, we'd start up, we'd drive down the road, and one of the first things we would do is we'd take our hands off the steering wheel. You know why we did that? To see if it would pull to one side. It would often tell us there was something wrong with the suspension. And most cars would pull to one side, especially if you took your hands off the wheel and you stood in the brakes. It would tell you something about their natural bent to go that way. Well, humans have a natural bent and it's to go their own way, to do their own thing, and to be selfish, and to, um, and, to, and to basically sin, and to fall short of what God says is what his will is. So there's the annul nature within us. The second enemy is the world around us. We're going to talk about that, and how it has an effect on you, on your children, on your grandchildren, and will continue to have in your family. And then there's this other third enemy, which I'm going to touch on in a couple of weeks, and how that actually works, it's Satan and his minions. The first message I looked at is, why do I struggle with what's inside me? Why do I struggle with gossip? When I know I shouldn't say that, but I do. Why do I struggle with, with, with envy? Why do I struggle with jealousy? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? What is that inside of me? That was the first week. Today, I'm going to move to the second phase, and how do I live in a broken world? And before we can look at God's plan for you to succeed and survive, before we get there, we need to look at what's happening. In other words, we need to diagnose what the problem is before we get to the solution. If I go to Dr. Tom and say, Dr. Tom, I'm here to see you before, before I see him. He says, hey, here's the answer. Here's some augmenting. I said, well, hang on. You don't know what's wrong with me. So we're going to look at the cause before we go to the prescription. So let's take a look at this. Millions of people around the world have asked the same question that Job asked right here in Job 7.1. Why is life so hard? Why do we suffer? Why is it tough going sometimes? And some of you in this room right now are feeling some of the nuances of that verse. I'm going to start today by looking at the reason 
wipe things out of the way, the results, and then finally the right response. That's how we're going to attack this today, to the difficulties that you face in life. So let's start by looking at the cause or the reason. Why is it difficult to live on this planet? You might write this down. Firstly, the cause is rebellion against God broke everything. Rebellion against God broke everything. So it all started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. I've just been to a conference where we've got some of the world's greatest Christian scientists. And they're talking about the mitochondrial Adam and Eve. That's a whole other subject. You can Google it if you want. But they were in the Garden of Eden in perfect paradise. There were no problems. There were no, there's no pain. There was no sorrow or sickness or suffering. Imagine a world like that for a moment. Just imagine that. There was no sadness. There was no despair. There was no discouragement. And there was no depression. None of that existed. Imagine that perfect world. But then one day, Adam and Eve decided they wanted to do what they wanted to do, irrespective of what God said to do. So this is the way it worked. God said you can do everything you want to do in this paradise. Everything. That's a big word. But then he had to do one thing. He said, except one thing. Just one. Everything. Remember the everything? Except one thing. Everything apart from one thing. That was necessary because it provided the minimum temptation possible. And what does man want to do? Immediately, the one thing that God says, don't do, they want to do. I have seen this attribute in some of my children. Don't touch that. You can play everywhere else, but just don't touch that. You know what their little fingers do, don't you? You know what their little heart, that's something inside of them, drags them towards that thing they're not supposed to do. Everywhere else, but not that. Why did God give Adam and Eve a choice? Well, if it didn't, they'd be robots. They would have no free will. But one of the great perfections he gave you and me is free will. And I get to choose. Because without a choice, they cannot choose to love God or to reject him. They just have no choice. They'd be automatons. And by the way, if you're forced to love it's not real love, because love is a choice. That is one of the perfections which God gave them. So if you have no choice, it's not real love. So Adam and Eve effectively said right there and then in the garden, we know better than you, God. We know what will make us happy. We're smart. We're going to choose what we want to do. We want to be fully in control. Not 99.99999. We want, we want to be fully in control of our lives. So they chose to do the one thing God, that God said don't do. And therefore, the Bible records this error. In Romans 5.12, it said, Sin came into the world because of what one man did, and with sin came death. So sin brings death. Now remember, sin is not, death is not limited to the inevitable end of physical existence. Death includes the curses God pronounced in Genesis, and especially important is eternal separation from him in eternity, like a virus. 
Sin infects all of humanity, dooming us to all a death-like existence. So each of us rebelled against God in our ways. Now, not only though did Adam and Eve make that choice, we've all made that choice. We've all said, me included, I don't want to tell the truth. I want to say what's convenient instead. We have all said, I want to do the right thing. But what we've often done is the easy thing and not the right thing. We've all said, I want to be what God made me to be. But actually, many of us have done our own thing. This is serious. We've pursued what we thought would make us happy. And the Bible says there's a a way which seems right unto man, but in the end leads to death. In fact, Isaiah 53, 6 says this, all of us, that's very encompassing, have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own paths. And when we do that, we're saying, God, we're thumbing our noses at God and say, I know better than you. That's a dangerous place to be. See, sheep are naturally geared to wander. And likewise, we've done our own thing. And we've all said many times, God, I'm going to do what I want to do, not what you want me to do. And Proverbs 20 verse 9 says here on the screen, no one can say I am innocent. I've never done anything wrong because none of us are perfect. We've all broken God's laws and we don't measure up to God's standards. You know what? Here's a confession. I don't even measure up to my own standards, which are way lower than God's. I get disappointed in myself. And we've all not done what God has told us to do. That Bible calls that state of mind and action rebellion. That's what it calls it. Now, there are three kinds of rebellion, three ways in that we rebel against God. Here they are, quickly. Number one is the word sin. Now, some of you heard, what the heck is sin? Sin is falling short or missing the mark. And it comes from the old days when, and that's when, when you used to archery and you pull back that bow and you're aiming for the bullseye. Now, if you fall short or you miss the mark, that is the whole idea of sin. You miss what you're supposed to hit. You'd fallen short. And it means you failed to be what God made you to be. I miss the mark, I fall short. The second word is the word transgression. And that means you go too far. It's going beyond the boundary. You break God's law. Now, sin can be just this. I didn't measure up. I didn't hit the mark. I wasn't good enough. I can say that a million times over. I wasn't perfect. Of course, nobody would say that. But a transgression, which I'm going to differentiate this, means I intentionally break the law and I go way past the boundary. For example, I've just been on the Californian freeways. And I'm going 80 mile an hour there. 80 mile an hour is over the speed limit by a long way, but I'm deliberately doing that by 15 mile an hour. Some guys are going past me at 90 and 95. That is not a sin, that is a deliberate transgression. <laughs> They're pushing the boundary. It's deliberate, willful defiance. That's what that is. Howard. And then the third word, which we don't often hear much today in our language, but I still want to, because it's in the Bible, I want to talk about it. And the word is iniquity. And it's not used today, but it's an intention to hurt somebody else. This is a different level again. And it's to do damage or evil to. And maybe you're mad or you're jealous or you're hurt or you're bitter because somebody has offended you and you just want to hurt them back. That is an iniquity. 
Now, let's wrap this, that, this section up by saying, and look at this next verse in Psalm 32, verse 5. David confesses all three here, all these three definitions. Here they are. I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I confess my transgression, for you forgave my guilt. Now, the Bible shows us it doesn't matter which of these types of rebellion we commit. If we confess that sin to God, he will forgive us. Isn't that good news? Because otherwise we're in deep doo-doo. Let's summarize this. We have all broken God's laws, and any rational person would agree with that. We have rebelled by our sins, by our transgressions, and by our iniquities. And therefore, nothing works correctly. Now, I have found moment of self-confession. It is very easy to underestimate the ubiquitous nature and seriously deleterious effects of sin on transgressions and iniquities. And when you more deeply understand this, you don't have to ask the question, why is this happening? Why is life so hard? When you understand this, you're able to understand and handle the tough times and difficult times easier. So why is it so hard? Why do we suffer? Why is everything a battle? The answer is rebelling against God corrupted or broke everything. That's the reason. Now, what's the result? What's the damage? It's very significant because in every single area of your life, and you may want to write this down, the damage is nothing works perfectly. That's why most of you in this room have got a job. Because you're fixing stuff that's broke. Sin damages everything. It corrupts, it spoils everything. Every relationship is distorted by sin. And it degrades even the human body. The DNA is often corrupted, causing rogue cells to multiply. The immune system doesn't work perfectly anymore. And the effects of sin upon human beings is vast and it's pervasive. And sin reaches to the very core of our beings. And it corrupts our nature. And nothing, friends, nothing is left untouched by this ubiquitous sin. Now the Bible specifically mentions six dimensions where sin is going to damage your life. Six areas. Here they are. Real clear. Number one. The first result, the first area of damage is natural disasters and deformities. Natural disasters and deformities. Friends, we are right now in between bookends. Bookend number one we've already touched on, which is paradise lost in Eden. Where we're going to is the paradise to come. We're in between that right now. Because of what sin does to the world and people, the environment has suffered from human sin and poor choices. We live on a broken planet, and it's not perfect anymore. Eden is gone. Paradise was lost. And the result is now, we have hurricanes and droughts and earthquakes and tidal waves. The Bible says in Romans 8.20, creation was condemned, back here, to lose its purpose. That's powerful. It was corrupted, that purpose. The Greek in there and this is getting at the, it describes the decay that prevails. Do you know that everything we have runs downhill? I buy a brand new car from Calvin here, a brand new fufu car, and it starts off all nice. But what happens? Give it years, it runs downhill until eventually it's a heap of rust. 
I'll buy a building off one of you builders. Starts off great. Over time, everything runs downhill. Same principle in a cup of coffee. You have a nice hot cup of coffee. Over time, it loses its steam and eventually the cup disintegrates. Everything in the world, even the universe, is running downhill. It's running towards what we call a heat death. That's another issue. When humankind fell, everything in creation, your body, runs downhill. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's true. It's, if I said anything different to that, I would not be, I would be deluded. The CEV version says creation is confused. Everything in the world is damaged, including your DNA. If everybody's job or body worked correctly, there'd be no need for doctors or nurses or surgeons. So we have defects and disabilities because sin has broken everything. Everything runs downhill. Romans 8.22, all creation groans with pain. It groans and longs for release and into a transformation into a new heaven and new earth. That's why God's going to make a new heaven and new earth. This will not last. We groan, longing for our own release in the cycle of sin and decay. But until that time, we wait in the strong hope of not paradise lost, but paradise gained. The second result of the damage that sin has done is physical decay and death. Physical decay and death. There was no decay like that on this planet until sin entered the world. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 8.8, no one control the wind or stop its own death. Everybody gets old and everybody eventually dies. But we should try to delay with the, the decay with the oil of Olay, right? <laughs> People go to great lengths to postpone the inevitable, especially in California, where there's every surgery under the sun to make you look younger. Lotions and potions, makeup and Botox and surgeries. In the meantime, we're declining. The Bible says that, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our physical body is becoming older and weaker. I don't like that. We're going to work hard at keeping it stronger. Anybody want to give a testimony in that verse? Our physical bodies becoming older and weaker. <laughs> Many of us men get furniture problems where our chest drops into our drawers, if you know what I'm saying. And some of you, like uh, at night, your teeth shine like stars. They come out at night. <laughs> Sorry, I might like to say that in church. <laughs> Again, in physics, the law of entropy explains that everything in the universe is irreversibly decaying. Think about that. Everything. doesn't matter whether on Earth or in Pluto. All matter is degrading. All energy is being dispersed. In other words, the world is winding down. It has an end date, a past due date. And this law also, by the way, refutes entirely, not time to go into it, the theory of evolution, which is in serious trouble. 1 Corinthians 15.22, everybody dies because all of us are related to Adam, the first man. But there's some good news. God doesn't want us hanging here forever on a fallen planet. He's prepared a perfect place for us for eternity. Not on a planet broken with sin. Broken with rape and molestation and corruption and sorrow and sadness and greed and power plays and manipulations and misusing and abusing each other. But with him forever in heaven. Here's what the Bible says to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. Our earthly bodies which die and decay, there's the proof of what we're saying here, are different from the bodies we shall have in heaven. 
for they will never die. The bodies we now have embarrass us. Hmm? We become sick and die, but they will be full of glory when we come back to life again. Yes, we, they are weak, dying bodies now, but when we live again, they'll be full of strength. I'm looking forward to that day. So there are natural disasters, there's deformities. There, are, there is physical decay and there's death. The third result of sin is emotional distress and disappointment. Solomon wrote about this. I tried everything and he had the money. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of power, a lot of possessions, a lot of prestige. He had the lot. He was a billionaire. Anybody beat that one here? He says, I tried everything, but nothing satisfied me, gave me lasting satisfaction. Doesn't matter. Ecclesiastes 1.14, everything under the sun is meaningless, is what he said. This is a billionaire talking. Listen up. It's like chasing the wind. I think I'll just get some more, and I'm never satisfied then either. What's wrong? Cannot be right. What's missing cannot be recovered. What he's saying here, as a human being, is I can't change the past. Stuff I've done wrong, I can't undo it. And all the wrong that's been done to me, can't undo that either. Facts are facts. I can't control a lot of the future either. And the world cannot be fixed by human effort alone. It is irreparably broken. And stress, by the way, friends, is the result, the emotional result of living in a damaged, imperfect, sinful world. And we can help, oh yeah, by doing good. Absolutely. But our ultimate job is to get people into the perfect place, not to try and make the world a perfect place. You will never do that. That's why, I mean, some people are called to politics. I certainly am not. The damage is too deep to repair. You ever thought? That's why the Bible says we are strangers in a foreign land passing through. You ever thought in your life, well, by this time I, sh I shouldn't really be struggling with this attitude or this disposition or with these sins? Yeah, well, I'd figure it'd be better. It'd be different. I'd be more successful. Why is that? This isn't heaven, and nothing works perfectly. So we must learn to live in the current world with a disappointment and despair looking forward to our destiny in the future. That's how we sustain it. The fourth area of damage from this fall is relational distance and discord. Relational distance and discord. A lack of sense of community. In a perfect environment where there is no sin and no selfishness, you're not going to have conflict. But if you take a marriage, for example, two imperfect people cannot come together and make a perfect relationship. Guys, you married a sinner, but she married a bigger one, right? So you're not going to have a perfect relationship. Young people, listen to me. You will have problems in marriage. And can I suggest to you something? Oh, marriage is there to make me happy. I'd say, eh, if that happens, great. What marriage is there to do is make you holy, less selfish. Because that's what it does when properly applied. You'll have some serendipities and joys along the way, but marriage is there. You wait till you add some children on top, that'll make you even more unselfish. Solomon mentions this too. People don't treat each other right. He says, I've been watching, and you know what? People aren't really very nice to each other. They hurt each other, they abuse each other, they lie about each other, they gossip about each other, 
and they pretend like they haven't done anything wrong. Life's messed up. Broken and messed up relationships cause a lot of pain, a lot of misery. Ecclesiastes 4.1 says it here. I saw all the people, and they were mistreated here on the earth. I saw their tears, that they had no one to comfort them. So how did it all get messed up? When Adam and Eve rebelled, both ate and both were spoiled by so doing. And from that moment on, they were ill at ease with each other. There was a mistrust and an alienation that happened. And there was an ill ease with God. They were even fearful about him from that moment onwards, and they hid from him. Fancy that. How can you hide from God? And it's not only alienated them from God, but it disconnected them from each other. So they started hiding and covering up. And previous to the sin, the intimacy was perfect. But it was replaced with fear, distrust, and shame. Genesis 3, 7 hints at this. They suddenly felt ashamed, this is after the sin, of their nakedness. And so they strung fig leaves together to cover themselves up. Friends, when we're out of sorts with God, out of whack with others, we pretend to cover up our faults. And Adam and Eve, you notice, didn't confess. They just attempted to cover up their sin. So what's your fig leaf? What do you try to cover up? What do you need to confess and confront? Then Adam told God, here he says in 3.10, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Can, you, can I hear that? Sin makes us defensive. and introduces distance in relationships. Fifth, there were financial and vocational difficulties affected by sin. Yeah. The fall can even damage areas of finance and impact your career. How do economies get broken? You tell me how my home state is the fifth largest economy in the world and is bankrupt. How is that possible? We've got Facebook and Google and everybody else there, and we can't make ends meet. I'll tell you why. Because I don't understand the principle of flat-out budgeting, living within our means. Quit spending money we don't have, and if you don't have any money, just raise the taxes. Sounds familiar? Do we have that problem here? Of course we do. The principle of accounting, keeping good records. People just spend willy-nilly. With my hand on my heart, I can tell you, I can tell you where every single cent of mine has gone for the last 30 years. Every cent. You need to watch your money. If you don't, people just kind of wonder where it all goes. You need to tell your money where it's going. That's a budget. Wondering where it went is a serious problem. <laughs> also, are you satisfied with what you've got? Or is there a constant push for more, 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 more? It's like a mirage. I'll just get to that. Oh, that didn't satisfy. And the next one. And the next iPhone. And on, 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 on. Where do you say stop? Not counting the cost is another one. And being ripped off in business deals can be financially devastating. Ecclesiastes 5. Here's a terrible thing that I've seen in this world. People save up their money for a time when they need it and then lose it all. I was just with a guy last week who did exactly that. In some bad business deal and ended up with nothing left to pass on to their children. That's a whole other subject. Then Solomon reflects on the result of the fall of loss of meaning and purpose in work. He says here in Ecclesiastes 2, 17 plus 18, I hated life. Because the work I did under the sun was meaningless to me. Just, in other words, I felt like I was just showing up and punching my time card. Do you remember when you used to do that? You used to go and take a card and you used to punch it in the clock and it would stamp. And even when you went for smoko, that's morning tea, you'd punch it, 
and you'd stamp, and they'd count by the minute, and it was, just gets old. So I turned in despair from hard work. It wasn't the answer. Now, the Bible never condones laziness, but it also says you're a fool if you work yourself to death and you miss the most important things. It wasn't the answer to my search for satisfaction in life. He had a thought. Well, if I had a really good career and succeed in life, I'm going to be really satisfied. Yeah? And then he goes. But ultimately, he didn't satisfy at all. It's broken too. No lasting satisfaction in that. Here's a statement I want you to think about. An ultimate commitment to anything less than the ultimate will never ultimately satisfy. Let me say that one more time. An ultimate commitment to anything less than the ultimate will never ultimately satisfy. Many folks have given their life and soul climbing the ladder of success and they get to the top and they realize that they'd wasted all of their effort on something that didn't really matter. I was with somebody this week who for the last 40 years of their lives have given it to this business. And let me tell you, it has done irreparable damage to their marriage and their family and their family's faith. Not worth it. I want to quote you from a man I respect tremendously. His name is Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary. He just passed away. And this is from his funeral. I transcribed part of it. I was listening to it this week. My fear for you, friends, is not that you will fail, but that you will succeed in doing the wrong thing. Statement number one. That hit. Hit and hurt. Statement number two. This is played at his funeral. He was preaching, and I took this from him. Howard Hendricks. We're on our way to the land of the living. Paradise gained. How tragic the possibility for all of us that we would spend all of our time, all of our effort, all of our giftedness, all of our money, and all of our potential pouring our life down a rat hole. This is his funeral. At the end of which, we would never be able to say, I really lived a fulfilled life, and it was worth showing up on the planet. It was worth it that Jesus Christ died for my sins and gifted me, enabled me to make an impact in my generation for his glory. Wow. On the other hand, he finally, uh, he, uh, there's one other statement he pulled out. I pulled out from him. He says, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's becoming more and more like him, not more and more like the world. The sixth and final area here is spiritual discontent and darkness. That's a, an effect and a damage. Spiritual discontent and darkness. They're not only emotional and relational and financial and vocational and physical consequences of ignoring what God says, but there are spiritual consequences. There is a discontent and a darkness and a despair that goes all over us. Have you ever felt like God's a million miles away? I'm not even sure he's there. I'm praying, but you're not sure he's listening. It's like your prayers are proverbially bouncing off the ceiling. Don't feel close to God. There's distance in that relationship. Of course you don't. Well, here's the reason why. 
Isaiah 59.2 says, your iniquities, your sins, your transgressions have separated you. Introduce that distance, separation, you know. Separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's what the Bible says, husbands especially. Can I just address you for a moment? The Bible says, live in an understanding way with the wife whom you love, lest your prayers be hindered. Don't be so dogmatic and domineering. Live with her in an understanding way. Sometimes we're looking for all the reasons why our prayers, and that's a very specific one. Live with your wife in an understanding manner. Your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. But I'm saying, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to call my own shots. I'm not going to obey what the Bible says. And one of the things it says, young people, is sex is for marriage only. Between one man and one woman. Not before, not in the middle. In marriage. In a committed relationship. Period. Going against that disconnects you from God and will leave a heart, hole in your heart and a confusion that nothing can fill. Then you start searching and you start looking for God in all the wrong places. A lot of people don't even know they're looking for God. They call it happiness. I'm looking for happiness. I'm looking for happiness. I'm looking for peace, I'll say. I'm looking for security. I'm looking for fulfillment. I'm looking for meaning and purpose. Friends, what they're looking for is actually God because he's the only one that can give you all those things. Other things are faux. They are fake. Or they promise this, but they don't deliver. Think about how happy you were when you bought your first iPhone. Do you still have that one? <laughs> Unfortunately, some people treat their wives like an iPhone or their husbands like an iPhone. Yeah, not so good anymore. Try them for the next one. Job says it like this. He expresses a sentiment. I'm like a caravan in the middle of a desert, lost in the desert, searching for water. He says, I felt like I'm in the middle of the desert with only so much energy left, and I don't know which way to go, but I'm dying of thirst. And you only have so much life left. I was with somebody this week whose daughter's 35 years old, and she probably won't last in the month. You don't know. I don't know. Life is broken. Now, it's easy to start looking for solution to your thirst, which actually will only be fulfilled by God in all the wrong places. Searching in the wrong places will only compound the emptiness and the discouragement. Ephesians 4.18 says, They refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch, not only with God, but with reality itself. Whoa. And if you want to validate that, just turn on your TV. I've just been on a plane recently, and oh man, some of the movies there have lost touch with reality. The so-called reality TV, it's nothing like reality. It's delusional. They're not only in touch with God, they don't even know what life's really all about. And they're spinning around in endless, inane circles, making tiny things enormous issues. They're out of touch, and they're in the dark, and that matters. Now, when we see a picture of what sin does to this world, it's not a pretty picture. 
It's not meant to be. It's meant to be depressing and ugly. No wonder people get depressed and hopeless. What should we do? Well, if you are an ambassador of Christ, and I realize not, not everybody is here today, and that's okay. But if you are an ambassador of Christ, you should hate sin. Hate it. Because that's what your heavenly father has. Because of the damage and the despondency and the depression and the confusion and the conflict that it causes. The problem is today, we don't hate sin. We laugh at it. We think it's a joke. Friends, when I hear something that causes divorce and disaster and deformity and decay and disappointment and relational discord and spiritual discontent and darkness and disillusionment, that is not a laughing matter. If you want to know how bad sin is, you look at the cross where the Son of God paid the most expensive price in the universe to fix this mess. Because there's no way you and I can undo all of that damage in the world, in your family, in your own personal life by yourself. That's why Christ was sent as a savior. To save you and to begin the process of sanctification and restoration until we are like him in eternity. So finally and quickly, what's the solution? The starting point is you need to accept Jesus Christ as your savior. That is the starting point. Next week, we're going to learn in detail about the answers to how to live by faith in a broken world. But first, I'm going to accept Jesus as my Savior because he's the only one who can help undo the effect and the damage of sin this side of heaven. He's the only one. No self-help book, no Tony Robbins seminar will ever help you fix this issue. Jesus said this, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Because I've overcome the world. I've got it. I've done it. If that's the case, I'm, I need to follow his light. I need to follow his light. Because a lot of times I'm in the total dark about what I should do with the damage that's showing up, that's done in my life. I remember in the Tongariro National Park, not too far from Whakapapa, I was hundreds of feet under the ground, caving. And most of you in this room have never in your entire lives experienced total darkness. What it really looks like. Darkness is the absence of light. Total. The guide there turns on one little, little tiny light. Not a massive great mag light. A little, little tiny one. And he says, follow me on the way out. What do you think our group was going to do then? Go the other way. Now you're going to go and follow the guy with the light. John 8, 12 says this. I am the light of the world. If you have a choice. Going back to the beginning. You have a choice. If you follow me. You won't be stumbling through the darkness. Because you will have the light that leads to life. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, we look out on this world and we are disappointed so much of the time. Products don't live up to our expectation. 
people don't live up to our expectations, promises don't live up to our expectations, and we're disappointed in the events of life. Often we're, we're even disappointed with ourselves, Lord. Father, would you help us to realize that this is not your plan, but that you want to restore that which was broken. Now, maybe some of you today would just want to follow along with me in a prayer and pray this in your heart. Just say in your heart, dear God, I admit I've rebelled against you. I've done the things that I wanted to do instead of what you wanted me to do. I've gone my way. I've been disconnected from you, and so I'm also disconnected with other people. I've sinned and I've transgressed and I've hurt other people. And I recognize, Lord, that nothing works perfectly in my life. Jesus Christ, some of you want to say, I affirm you once again as my Savior. Just say that, Jesus, I affirm you once again as my Savior. And if you've never asked him to be your Savior, say, Jesus Christ, I ask you to become my Savior today. Restore physical health to my body. Restore emotional health to my mind and feelings and relational health where there's distance and discord and conflict, Lord. Most of all, Lord, I want to be spiritually healthy. I want to be connected to you. I do not want to walk in the darkness, stumbling around anymore. Jesus, you are the light. You are the torch. So I accept you, Jesus, as my Savior. And I want to follow your light as best as I know how. Would you use this series to help me get some healing in the areas that are broken and some direction? I pray this in your powerful, matchless name. Amen.